Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Marvarzan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Keith Boykin, a CNN political commentator, New York Times bestselling author, and a former White House aide to President Bill Clinton. A member of Dartmouth's class of 1987, Keith has taught at the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University and at American University in Washington, D.C. He is also a co-founder and first board president of the National Black Justice Coalition. Keith is a Lambda Literary Award-winning author of four books and has another book coming out this year titled Race Against Time. Keith, it's a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So many of your writings and many and often a lot of your work um, involves sharing personal experiences or are inspired by the personal experiences of others um, with regards to justice and discrimination um, based on your identity as a black and gay man. Um, why do you believe it's important to share these experiences with others? And what do you think that these experiences do? What are the roles of these experiences um, on a public and national platform? Well, I think it's important for people to see themselves uh, I think it's important for people to know, especially in the world where um, we're conditioned to believe that white men are dominant and have most of the privilege in our society, uh, that there are other people who don't necessarily have uh, that background who have uh, their own life experiences to share. Uh, you know, white men are, I think, 29% of the world, of the nation's population, of America's population. Uh, but there are black people and, and, and Latino people and Native American people and Asian American people and people from various backgrounds and various sexual orientations and various identities and various nationalities whose stories don't often get told. Uh, and the only way to tell those is, is, is only way to sort of uh, to, 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 to ameliorate that problem is to tell those stories. Uh, to make sure that we don't just tell uh, the same stories of the same few people and expect everyone else to sort of get it and fit in. Um, and that's part of the diversity and the beauty of our country that we don't all have to have the same experience. So I think it's important to share that for that reason. Definitely. And as part of the experiences that you've been sharing, you do a forthcoming book I mentioned before, Race Against Time. I know you don't want to give away too much about it, but maybe what can you tell us a little bit about the title and, and what main ideas you, you look forward to conveying through that story? Well, right now we're in this interesting phase where uh, it, it, right before an election, first of all, but even, even beyond the election issue, we're in this interesting period of time where uh, white America, and not everybody in white America, but white America uh, as a category has become aware of its uh, pending lack of dominance or potentially pending lack of dominance in the country. And so we're, what we're seeing is that in some quarters, that's a very disturbing uh, prospect and people are reacting uh, resentfully. They're re- reacting violently in some instances. Uh, some people would like to go back to another time we can make America great again to whatever time that uh, may be in the past. Uh, and that past from when America allegedly was great uh, doesn't often include uh, people like me. It doesn't include people of color. It doesn't include LGBTQI people. It doesn't include women. It doesn't necessarily uh, include anyone who isn't cisgendered, heterosexual, white male. Uh, and I think it's important to, to challenge that. I think it's important to stand up against that. Um, and I, I think that what the, the book is trying to do is to tell, is to warn us that we have two choices here. 
on one hand, we could continue on the current path. We don't really deal with the issues of race. We kind of let them simmer underneath the surface without actually addressing them uh, forthrightly and continue to have these conflicts that brew up every few years into um, what you might call riots or uprisings. On the other hand, we can actually make a whole lot of effort to change our policy, to look forward to a different way where we create real equality, racial equality in America, uh, where we're not satisfied simply by uh, reducing the level of misery in PLC communities, but actually creating full equality for all people in our country. That's really a challenge we, we're facing. Uh, and so the race against time is, uh, which side are we going to be on at the finish line? Are we going to be uh, coming, we're going to come across as victors knowing that we've done everything we can to make America a more just, more equal society. Are we going to be a shattered, torn, divided nation that never crosses that line because we're going to continue, continually fight uh, these issues, these old battles until we disintegrate as a nation? Yeah, definitely. And speaking of, I guess, coming to that finish line, um, how do you kind of compare or contrast um, today's kind of uh, recent like rise in social and social justice activism and the current social movement um to past to ones in the past and and do you think that this is indeed moving us closer to the finish line how how close do you think that, that this this gets us there well, the thing about this is you can never really tell when the finish, where the finish line is or when, when we're going to be uh, reaching it, because the finish line could mean different things. It could mean that we reach this point of full equality, which seems kind of uh, esoteric and ethereal and, and, and far away and, and, and almost uh, impossible. Um, or it could be that we reach the point where the nation, as we know it, no longer exists. Uh, and so the question is, which finish line, I guess, we're talking about, which, which one we're going to be ending up at. Um, and... I think what's different is that right now in the new movement we're seeing, the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for social justice, we're seeing people of all different walks of life and backgrounds who are coming together to to fight for social justice. We're seeing people who typically haven't necessarily worked together in coalitions who are working collectively, even if they're not necessarily uh, meeting together, working together, working on the same agenda. Uh, and that's important development because it's not just one group's uh, obligation or responsibility to fight for social justice or change. And people are starting to recognize, too, uh, that, that the lack of social justice actually harms all of us. It doesn't just harm people of color. It doesn't just harm black people. It harms all of us because it makes us a weaker society. It means that we have to have more guns and more violence and, and, and more uh, efforts to protect ourselves from the scary uh, prospect of people coming into our neighborhoods that we don't like because we haven't empowered them. We haven't given them jobs and healthcare and education and housing and, and equality in the criminal justice system. Or we can have a society we we give people the, the skills and resources they need to be successful, productive members of the society. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live uh, worried about our neighbors. We don't have to all be armed to the teeth, um, ready for some impending civil war. And so I, I hope that people will think wisely and choose a choose the choice of love, choose the choice of, uh, of uh, opportunity and hope and not choose the choice of fear and division. Yeah, that's definitely a great point. Um, thinking about this current wave a little bit more, um, there's definitely a lot of different parts to it. Um, we hear people emphasizing um, there's uh, there is the protest on the street. Um, there is the movements and and the calls and repostings on social media um, that that made social media a very dominant way of, of expressing points of view. Um, there have also been um, increased calls to go out and vote. 
Um, there's also been a rise in activism from young people. So given these kinds of different um, facets of the current movement, um, how do you how do you see the future um, of activism in, our, in this country and in particularly activism with regards perhaps to social justice kind of going? Hmm. I think it's evolving. I mean, I think uh, the, the nature of activism has evolved just because of the technological advances that make it di- easier in some ways to, to, to activate various networks of people. Um, we're able to have virtual activism now, even uh, even in the midst of the pandemic, so not everyone has to actually be on the front lines of a, of a literal physical movement. Um, and I think what's happening is that the information age has also exposed us to more information to rebut and respond to the disinformation, the lies misinformation that's out there about various communities have been subjected to oppression. Uh, It used to be that you could make up lies and and create stereotypes about about disenfranchised or marginalized populations, and there was really no nothing that those groups could do to resist that. And there was not a great deal of information or counter narrative or counter history to respond to that. Today, we can create our own institutions, we can create our own media, we can create our own um, activist uh, organizations to help support that counter narrative, that counter story, uh, and to create that resistance. So I think that there's there are more tools available now, and that's also very helpful. I'm just uh, I'm, I'm encouraged. Uh, you know, the, 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 the downside of this, of course, is that those tools are also available to those who aren't in favor of change, who want to keep things as they were or want to go back to a time before. But I'm encouraged because I think that the, the voices I see of young people in particular uh, on the streets and the front lines and picket lines and social media and social media activism and else, elsewhere uh, are new. Um, they're fresh. They're ex- they're ready to be engaged. Um, they may even be engaged in ways outside the political process. It doesn't even involve the traditional sort of electoral political thinking. Uh, but um, all politics is personal. I think people are finding ways to 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 have a different, make a difference in in their own lives. Yeah, definitely for sure. Um, and kind of speaking of and how you've participated, perhaps. Um, and, and spoke on this movement. You were featured in Dartmouth Alumni Magazine a few months ago, where you detailed your own unjust arrest while c- covering a peaceful protest as a member of the press. Um, and in this article, you stated that police turn a peaceful protest into an unfortunate rite of passage. Um, could you elaborate kind of more my, what you meant by that statement? And um, perhaps um, given the current restrictions with the pandemic that kind of differ nationwide, um, where, where can young people begin and where can anyone who, who's interested in, in being part of this movement begin with, uh, with fighting for equality and combating this resistance to tackling discrimination? Well, when I said that uh, police had turned a peaceful protest into an unfortunate rite of passage, I was really talking about the past, the rite of passage of being arrested as a black man. Um, I'd never been arrested before until earlier this year, and it happened when uh, I was covering a protest as a, as a journalist uh, here in New York City, uh, a Black Lives Matter protest through the streets of the city. Um, and... It didn't have to end an arrest, but it did in part because we've given, I think, too much authority to the police to make discretionary decisions about um, how they enforce the law. And oftentimes, too oftentimes, most oftentimes, those decisions, that discretion tends to end up not to the benefit of people of color or to African Americans like myself. That's why we had in New York, for example, the stop and frisk policy, which has since been reduced, not not officially uh, altogether discontinued, that that 
stopped hundreds of thousands of, of black men, uh, lots of young black men and black and Latino men. And, and to be honest, uh, I think 88, 87% of the people who were stopped were black or Latino. Uh, and the overwhelming majority of them were innocent. Nearly 90% or more of them were innocent. Uh, but they were stopped because of the over-policing of our communities, the over-policing of black and brown communities. Uh, and you don't see the police going to white neighborhoods or white college campuses, for that example, for that matter, um, trying to round up uh, people or young people for smoking marijuana or engaging in minor offenses that don't really threaten society. Um, I just think that it, 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 people have to be first conscious of what's going on. They have to. Ed, we have to educate ourselves about the, the, the racial disparities that exist in our society. We can't deny it. We can't pretend like racism doesn't exist. There are a lot of people who are invested in pretending that it doesn't exist and trying to claim that because there's some marginal difference here or there, or because one person who happens to be well-known and prominent has achieved success, that means everyone has achieved, achieved success. We saw that when President Obama was elected, there was an effort to create this sort of fake paste what I consider a fake post-racialism to assume that um, America had moved beyond its racist past because of the success of one person. And that's never been the case. So I think the first step is really just educating ourselves and then educating others and using that knowledge, not simply uh, to hold on to it, but to empower ourselves, to take other action, to get other people engaged in the process, to, to spread the word and to keep making change. Um, so you, you as you served as you played roles as, as both a student activist and, and also um, as a member of the press of the media. Um, and there's and there's there's many who, who think that there is a, also an important connection between the two of connecting activism with the public opinion with um, and, and what the public ends up knowing as part of this kind of educational aspect. So uh, how have these experiences in both of those as a student activist and as a member of the media um, view uh, impact your view on how the media should be covering activism at the local and national level. Well, you know, the interesting thing, I think uh, someone might have indicated or hinted at this in question during the, the, the speech that I just gave. Uh, the interesting thing is that um, the media have for a long time, not everybody, but uh, some in the media have tended to follow the old, if it bleeds, it leads uh, mentality which was uh, often ascribed to local news, but uh, can very well fit to national news as well. The idea that if there's something violent, something sexy, something really interesting or visual, we'll cover it. Uh, and so the things that aren't quite as sexy, aren't quite as uh, visual, aren't quite as violent and graphic don't necessarily get the same attention. So you don't see the... Uh, the, the legions and legions of people on the protest lines or marching every week who happen to be still advocating for for Black Lives Matter uh, in cities across the country. You don't see them on the news every, very often unless there's some sort of serious conflict, uh, in, unless there's some sort of violence or an arrest or a death or, or something that is dramatic and visual. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, this is a huge movement that's taking place in our country and a huge moment. And um, unfortunately, we're not spending a, as much time as we should be talking about it because we only tend, we only tend to zoom in on those moments of extreme crisis, when there's a shooting in Kenosha, when there's a, a murder uh, in uh, Minneapolis, or when when there's violence in Portland, uh, or when there's an uprising uh, in in any other community, uh, and so I think that's that's something that needs to change. The media uh, at all levels, we have to find ways to be engaged in 
covering these uh, protest movements, even when there isn't violence, even when there isn't a, a stark visual, even when there isn't uh, something, some sort of dramatic conflict, because the, the real story is the fact that, that millions of Americans are engaged in this uprising. I think I read a story in the, I don't remember, the New York Times or Washington Post or somewhere uh, not too long ago this year. This is the largest protest movement, mass protest movement in American history now, uh, this social justice movement that we're witnessing. And so let's cover this. Let's uh, interpret this and, and, and analyze this in the, in the context of the scope and scale of which we're witnessing. We're witnessing history. People will be talking about this years later in the same way we talk about, or maybe not in the same way, but in similar ways, we, the way we talk about the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Yeah. So is it something that you think that the media itself can come around to evolve and, and change with, or is there another way perhaps using that technology that you discussed earlier that, that, that this, this more accurate and more deeper, this deeper representation can occur? Well, I think the media is capable of it. It's just, I mean, the, the, the people just have to be convinced that it's important. I mean, the, the media, the media, media institutions are filled with real people, and real people have real biases and real blinds, or real, I don't use, what, use that word, but real sort of uh, inabilities just to understand and, and see certain things because they're not part of their personal life experiences. So I think it's really important to uh, sort of challenge what we know, uh, to think beyond what we cover often and, and figure out why aren't we covering other issues uh, that we don't talk about. Uh, if, if what you see in the newspaper or on the television or in the radio is the same thing or on the podcast, it's the same thing that you see in your life every day, then you aren't doing your job because you're only one person. We're only one people. There's so many other groups of people out there who we don't know. And those stories need to be told too. So if we're just talking to ourselves, repeating the same stories of the small communities of people that we're engaged with, we're not successfully reaching the, 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 the multitudes of people who don't share those stories, who have different experiences, and uh, often are even more marginalized than some of us who were marginalized as well. Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent point. Um, and having, I guess, seen that this is this evolution of, of activism, and at the same time, um, this perhaps need for evolution um, on the side of the media, um, what advice would you give to undergraduate students today who are who are choosing or who would like to engage in activism, seek to challenge outdated or discriminatory policies in support of their peers of color, in support of um, uh, making sure that um, this understanding and, and knowledge is, is spread and represented in academia? Um, what advice would I give? I don't know if I, I have the... the uh... The, the direct knowledge of what's happening on every college campus, even in Dartmouth's college campus, to be able to give uh, sort of granular advice. I can sort of give uh, larger advice, which uh, broader advice, I should say, which is really more focused on being willing to listen to people who are different from us. Uh, and that applies to everyone. Um, that we can't assume that because uh, we know something that we know everything we have to be listening be, be willing to listen to people whose experiences challenge us again um, and I think when people do that we grow you know when I was at Dartmouth I remember uh, some of my best friends uh, were people who didn't agree with me on anything 
yeah, I was a very, very, very progressive student in some ways. And uh, uh, I believed in that. And Dartmouth was at that time a very conservative campus. And uh, I, I felt very isolated and alone. But I learned from my experiences in arguing with and debating and talking to people who disagreed with me. Um, I learned, um, I think, what their arguments were, to understand their arguments, to be better able to frame my own arguments. And also learned from, from engaging with people who didn't necessarily disagree with me, but who, whose lives I didn't understand because they weren't my own. You know, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and then in Clearwater, Florida. I didn't know a lot about the, the international communities that were present at Dartmouth. I didn't know a lot about a lot of different uh, things in the world until I came to Dartmouth. Uh, had a t- chance to travel across the world uh, because of Dartmouth uh, to, to go to different countries, to participate in foreign study programs, to, to travel even representing the track team in uh, international uh, competition. And... Um, I just think those experiences helped me to grow. They helped me to learn more about the world and helped me to become a better person. Um, I just encourage people to do that, to sit down and listen to other people, not assume we have all the answers. Well, that's a really, really great note to end on, I think, today. Um, thank you so much, Keith, for joining us. And thank you for having me, Shay. Yeah, I really enjoyed our chat. Uh, to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.